0: In this episode of the Explore Information Security Podcast, what are bug bounty programs? Welcome to the Explore Information Security Podcast where you will learn, explore, and grow your security mindset. I am your host, Timothy D. Block, and in this episode, we will be exploring what are bug bounty programs. Joining me today to help answer this question is Keith Hoodlett, solutions architect at BugCrowd. And this is actually a new format because uh, I've decided to change things up a little bit. I am trying to get into conversations even more with people. I would really like some feedback on this. So if you like this current format, uh, please, please uh, hit me up on Twitter at Timothy D. Block. Or you can reach out to me on email, timothy.dblock at gmail.com. Of course, timothydblock.com forward slash EIS is where you can find the show notes. You can leave a comment there. This is uh, just something new I'm trying to to, to get into a little bit more conversation with people. I I am I am a little bit torn on whether I need to break up the episodes because it's a little bit harder to track for time. But I feel like if there's something that needs to be said to 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 get it out, and if it's if it's long enough, I'll split into two pieces. But um, in th- in this case, it was. 35 minutes long, and I kind of feel like that should be an entire episode by itself, or you know, maybe it should be split up. I don't know. I'm kind of looking for feedback from people. I know some people like the shorter format, um, but I am willing to go a little bit longer if necessary. In fact, this is just adding more and more time to the episode. So, yes, this is a little bit of a longer one. But um, you know, I can get better at at keeping the time for future episodes. That's that's something I'm still trying to figure out as I'm recording. But hit me up with that. Um, I will be at Convergence besides Detroit next week, so hit me up there. And then after that, I will be doing and hosting a panel at Show Me Con in St. Louis uh, early part of June. So be sure to check me out there as well. So. With that and with announcements out of the way, another benefit of doing this format, let's get right into the podcast with Keith Hoodlett. Um, So I'm trying a little bit something different this time with recording As usually I go through like my whole spiel and then say, how are you? But um, I am actually doing something different. Where I'm, we're, I've already started recording. Cool. We'll just jump right into it. I'm trying to I'm playing with this a little bit. Hey, do you ever listen to the Nerdist podcast?
1: I do. In fact, I listen to your podcast as well. I've been listening to it for a number of years now and enjoyed it quite a lot. So Well, thank um, you. Yeah, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. And I gotta say, it's one of those podcasts that I recommend to a lot of new people getting into the field. Yeah. Because they just don't know where to start, right? Right. So so it ends up being a situation where um, I end up recommending your podcast among them. And I so I'm familiar with the way you start it. I'm familiar with kind of the, the jive and the flow. Uh, so yeah, happy to jump in with, if you're doing something new, cool. I'm happy to be a guinea pig. <laughs> yeah, you, you
0: are definitely the first of this. So, uh, there is that, um, and I'll just figure out where I'm going to cut it in. This might be in, this might not be, I don't know. We'll see.
1: Hey, it, bloopers are awesome, man. We don't do them on security weekly all that much, but, right. uh, but every now and then when you get them in, it's great. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and I used to, um, I used to do that on another podcast. I used to do an Astros podcast and I would do bloopers at the end. Um, ah. stuff that we just took out or we'd have like these great conversations before cuz it was like a live show so i i i would stream it and um na like it um it just so, and so i'd like add some of that funny stuff either at the intro or like at the end of it it was and it was a lot of fun or we'd turn off the you know we'd, we'd end the stream and then we ended up getting to some weird conversations about vampires and other stuff so
1: ah yeah right we do that too on, on paul's show it always ends up being like we end the stream on either psw or asw and then just the conversations before or after or even in between like because we we cut out to breaks and stuff in the middle of the show for the recordings And it's just like the in-between conversation and chatter is a lot of fun as well. So I totally get
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, So uh, I guess we can just dive right into it. What are bug bounties? So I I probably should define a few
1: terms here. So bug bounties is traditionally the concept of a company or an organization paying for vulnerabilities found by third-party researchers. Uh, Now that's to differentiate itself from penetration testing where you're paying for the time of the security tester. In bug bounty programs, you're paying for the unique, valid findings of a tester. So it's a little bit different. Now, it often is misconstrued or conflated with things like coordinated or responsible disclosure, or even just vulnerability disclosure. And uh, for the way I think of those is there's no expectation of payment or reward. You're just trying to notify a company about Uh, vulnerabilities that exist in their software or their product and just trying to do right by them and hopefully by the rest of the users of that product by getting that vulnerability fixed. Uh, So bug bounties is when you actually end up paying whether it's swag or actual money for the vulnerabilities that are being reported
0: to you. and i just talked with my microphone muted um i was going to say i didn't know if that was uh like you
1: know the 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 uh, pregnant pauses they call it where they just kind of wait for the person to keep talking <laughs>
0: yeah, no, no mind, mind blown that's the first question you just did podcast over um no no what um I so so you said something there with security researchers, and I feel like it, I feel like I have to use air quotes with this because that seems to be a bit of contention within the field. So what what are security
1: researchers? You know, I definitely feel that that bit of contention, and I've gone back and forth with a number of people on this. And so, um, true to kind of what Jay Radcliffe talked about last year at DEFCON in the the biohacking village or the uh, medsec village, is a security researcher is someone who truly does perform research in, in the same way that a scientist performs research by hypothesizing that a vulnerability may exist in a certain way, testing their way toward finding how that vulnerability uh, can be exploited, and then actually generating the exploit or proving that the exploit or the vulnerability exists by way of a proof of concept. Uh, and so in my mind, the term security researcher actually fits quite well uh, because, True to form, I think that people are learning and and developing new techniques as they go along. Uh, I myself have found interesting vulnerabilities as part of the uh, bug bounty platforms that exist out there. And to that end, it wasn't something that I knew about right away. I just simply suspected that a vulnerability might exist. Uh, It continued to do tests to prove out that it actually did exist in the way that I thought it, it might. And then from there, I learned a few things along the way, and then I kind of put that knowledge Uh, into my library of tests that I would run against other companies. So uh, in my mind, a security researcher can be just about anybody who is looking for security vulnerabilities in a thoughtful and uh, purposeful way. So as opposed to perhaps what what people might call a script kitty, which is you run a tool, it provides you with vulnerabilities, and you say, yeah, you have vulnerabilities, and that's the end of the day. Uh, A security researcher takes that a step further and says, okay, the tool says these vulnerabilities exist, but are they exploitable? Uh, Or are they just simply bad code, so maybe it's a static analysis tool, or just fuzzy logic by the dynamic analysis uh, scanning tool that, in this case, doesn't quite prove out to be a true positive. So the difference, I think, between a security researcher and someone that's running a tool is the security researcher not only understands the vulnerabilities that are being found, but takes it a step further, can prove that that it exists in the form that it is being presented, or may just spot weird activity in an application and say, huh, I wonder. And that's in effect what science is all made of is, I've observed something that uh, seems curious or different. I've made a hypothesis on why that curiosity or difference exists. I've run tests to prove whether, well, not in this case, prove because science doesn't ever prove anything. Uh, But it it actually will show that, yes, my hypothesis uh, was accurate. And maybe there's a way that I can take this to the next level and and refine that that technique a little bit more. Um, So yeah, absolutely. I think that security research is a real thing. And and in this case, it is a term that should be used uh, more broadly,
0: perhaps. Well, and I think within the Platforms, these bug bounty platforms, I think they apply because my experience with the security researcher—I'm using air quotes uh, (laughs) here—they pretty much defaced our website and then left a YouTube link of the vulnerability in the software we were using, and they Ah. like they called themselves a security researcher at that point.
1: Ah, yeah, yeah. Well, just like people call themselves scientists, and they're not really you know, <laughs> scientists. Uh, so even it's funny. Even on my own website, I call myself a mad scientist because I do a lot of experimenting with different things. Uh, but yeah, I mean, those those people I would qualify as um, not maybe necessarily script kiddies because they might have some talent in finding vulnerabilities, but they're not a true security researcher. People that do science do it for the love of the the art of discovery. I think security researchers do their work for the same reasons, uh, whether or not they work for a good guy or a bad guy is an entirely different, um, set of ethics and of course, uh, general behavior. But to that end, I would say that for the most part, you could call anyone that actually is looking into vulnerabilities and means to do right by the community with their findings as science does, uh, it could be called a security researcher.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree with that. So what's your experience been with bug bounty programs?
1: So, uh, well, first and foremost, I, I, I don't know, can I tell where I work? I don't want to like advertise necessarily, but no.
0: Pl- I, I've told people plug whatever you want.
1: <laughs> sure. Sure. So, so, uh, well I work for a company called bug crowd. It was the first commercial offering of a bug bounty platform in the U S outside of things like, uh, in this case, Google or Facebook or some of the like Microsoft uh, bug bounty programs that existed for those individual companies. Uh, so it was in, I think, around mid-2012 that Bug Crowd was founded by Casey Ellis, who's an Australian. And uh, and so I work for Bug Crowd, uh, but as part of, of my work for Bug Crowd, prior to joining, I had signed up as a security researcher. And uh, in my experience there, I've found uh, 61 vulnerabilities across five organizations, uh, a number of them are priority one, uh, as we rated on our platform, which mean critical, so like CVSS 9 or, or higher uh, type vulnerabilities that would impact things like uh, full disclosure of your user database, or uh, I found some really interesting stuff with XML RPC uh, just before the OWASP top 10 got updated uh, related to XML external entities, which would allow for trivial DDoS of things like WordPress instances or Drupal instances. Uh, So I've done a bit of research myself in my free time, uh, but I also happen to work for one.
0: You don't say on the WordPress and Drupal.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Vulnerabilities exist in WordPress and Drupal. Who knew, right? Like it's, yeah. So it's, it's interesting because in the world of, of bug bounty platforms, which by the way, uh, pretty much every bug bounty platform out there doesn't just offer bug bounties. They offer responsible disclosure. they offer vulnerability disclosure. And the way that I would actually differentiate those two as I kind of iterated on or, or discussed a little bit earlier is responsible disclosure is almost like you have uh, an email inbox or uh, some form of of you know form on your page that can actually have a researcher drop by, leave you some information about a vulnerability that exists in maybe one of your web properties or one of your products and call it a day and, and do so mostly anonymously. Whereas like a vulnerability disclosure program is something like, uh, well, for example, Netgear, Netgear runs what's called a kudos only vulnerability disclosure program where you can earn reputation points on the platform, but they don't pay you a bounty. So it's almost like you're getting paid in uh, monopoly money for lack of a better term, but it's how a lot of, uh, Companies and organizations have gamified this process. Is they have things like ranks and uh, you know badges or uh, achievements and things like that. Uh, So, so to that end, I would say that um, they've definitely grown a lot in the last six years in terms of not only exposure uh, but also in terms of maturity of of offerings. So it's it's interesting that you can go out to a, a bug bounty provider today and they're providing you a lot more than a bug bounty. Um, so companies of all different shapes and sizes run these sort of things from the traditional sort of, uh, you know, companies like MasterCard, for example, or Netgear, as I mentioned earlier. But you also have like Tesla or Atlassian who makes uh, Confluence or Slack or, uh, you know, all sorts of other companies that happen to run um, bug bounty programs of different different varieties or different kinds.
0: So walk me through how someone like how the bug bounty bounty program works from the point of the security researcher? Sure. So
1: uh, it's a fewfold, right? So uh, generally speaking, every researcher on a a company or an organization that hosts a bug bounty platform uh, does so publicly first and foremost. So to that end, um, what they end up doing is they end up going ahead and Looking at the like bugcrowd.com/slash/programs or any of the other providers uh, to actually go ahead and figure out okay how do I prove out my skill on uh, being able to actually do this thing called you know security research and first and foremost at least on on bugcrowd I don't know how this works necessarily on other platforms but on bugcrowd what we do is you have to be able to prove that you can provide quality findings so it's something like three or four critical severe or moderate findings. You have to be generally active on the platform, and you can't produce a lot of duplicate findings. You have to actually generate some unique work. Once you've done that, you, you've you basically proven out that first you're going to come forward with the right set of ethics. You're willing to provide findings to these companies and follow the rules of the road that they've set out as part of their uh, bounty brief or program brief is, is what it's often referred to. So the the things that they say are in scope, the things that they say that you shouldn't, you shouldn't report on or you shouldn't test, for example, denial of service. A lot of companies don't want you to test for denial of service, which, you know, why would you want to have researchers around the world testing to see if they can bring down your site? Most <laughs> companies don't want that, right? Um, but to that end, some companies do say, you know, if you can prove without actually exploiting our website that a trivial denial of service could exist, that's still reportable. So it's kind of like uh finding those those ways to stay just within the lines of the ways that they've set out their program brief and, and working with those companies to provide them quality uh vulnerabilities that hopefully they'll go about fixing now that's that's where things get interesting right because you've reported it to the company now what and so the way that we work at least at bug crowd is we have a team of, of professionals that have worked with the company four or five plus years and they come from a background of application security engineering at a lot of other large companies. So they've, they've come to Bug Crowd as full-time employees to validate and triage findings that come through your program. So if you happen to know about that trivial denial of service vulnerability on your WordPress instance, you don't want to know about it for the 50th time. You only want to know about it the first unique time that it's been reported. So that kind of team will basically sweep the decks, make sure that you're getting true signal in every finding that comes through to to the company. And so the the dreaded feeling or the dreaded experience for security researchers is getting duped or getting a duplicate finding, right? So uh, what that means is, first of all, you don't get paid. So if you found something that was really good and somebody else reported it before you, well, there goes the bounty. Secondly, uh, if you're doing it for kudos points to get reputation, you get something like half of the, the reputation points or less. Uh, it might be a one-fourth. I, I have to confirm that. But um, to that end, it ends up being a situation where you really don't end up having like, uh, you spent all this time and you don't get any reward for it, which is kind of a bummer. Uh, but if you're talented and, uh, and you happen to be very good at things like recon, uh, major shout out here to my mentor, my sensei, as I like to call him, uh, Jason Haddix, who has taught me an incredible amount about the recon process, um, which I imagine a lot of people that do OSINT uh, would be very good at as well, which is finding things that are still within the scope of the bounty program that the company didn't think about, uh, because that tends to be the greener pastures that you can run security testing against and find some really crazy instances of vulnerabilities that that just shouldn't be out on the internet, quite frankly. Um so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fun experience. It's a little bit of a, I don't know if like a daredevil sort of experience per se, but it's it's very different when you're hacking against or performing security research on live programs of some variety, right? This isn't just canned software for like the OWASP juice shop or, uh, you know, any of the, the other things out there like Node Goat or um, the broken web application security project or any of those, right? And this is real stuff that people are trying to secure. And when you find that first vulnerability and you report it and it gets triaged and it's, it's like real or legit, there's such a, a feeling of elation at that point. And then it's like, okay, now is the company going to accept it or not? Um, which ends up being kind of an interesting, interesting problem to deal with uh, as both a researcher and as someone that uh, comes at it looking at the the company side. Right. Um, because, you have to kind of play both roles, a good advisor to the company, but also taking care of the community that really is the offering that you're providing as a, as a company like Bug crab
0: So if you had to go to bat for a security researcher for, before then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there
1: are situations where um, a researcher will report something, uh, the company will say, well, we don't necessarily think that that's a true vulnerability. And then it comes to people like myself at Bug Crowd where we get on the phone with them or we, we interact with the, the company of some kind and say, you know, based on our triage and validation, we can actually replicate that this is a real vulnerability at the very least before we recommend that you as a company uh, just shoot this down. Say it's, uh, you know, won't fix or uh, not applicable. You should at least give the researcher an opportunity to provide you with a, a proof of concept that you can test yourself. Because a lot of the times what you find, and and Tim, you probably experienced this a little bit because as I understand, you work in application security. A lot of companies aren't that fortunate, right? They don't understand truly what application security is about and the impacts of the vulnerabilities that are being reported against, which is why BugCrowd created something like a vulnerability rating taxonomy. Make it simple for the company to understand how important it is and make it simple for the researcher to know how important their finding should be to the company. Um, but to that end, sometimes you do have to go to bat. And, and at Bug Crowd, we do, um, we do try to take care of our researchers, even when companies don't necessarily treat them the way that I feel like the researchers should be treated, which is with respect and, and to some degree with you know, good communication. It's a relationship. And that takes two parties to really make successful.
0: Yeah, no, that, make, that makes sense. Are you finding that you're dealing more with uh, development teams or security teams?
1: Yes. Um, so honestly, it's it's a little bit of both. Most of the time, the way that it ends up working out is the product or the the service is sold to the security team. But at the end of the day, the findings need to make their way to development. And so to do that right, you ultimately need to try and include development as part of that process. So one of the things that I often promote is give a a viewer account to your lead developer or to your technical product manager or to someone that has an understanding of development life cycles within your organization that isn't part of security. And the reason that I say that is because at the end of the day, if features aren't built and products aren't shipped, your company isn't making money. So it's up to the security team in a lot of ways to act almost as an ambassador uh, to the development team. And at the same way, Hopefully, the the product that you as a company have bought, whether it's Bug Crowd or another um, bug bounty platform offering, is smart enough to know, okay, at the end of the day, we don't only work with security teams or security researchers. We work very closely with development teams and getting the findings to them where they live, whether that's with an integration or an API or some other mechanism of conferring that knowledge in a seamless way to the development team is really where the rubber meets the road. Because otherwise you can know about vulnerabilities all day, but if they're not getting fixed, then why is your company paying for them? And moreover, why are you even like talking about looking into vulnerabilities when you probably just shouldn't be doing a, a vulnerability disclosure or a bug bounty program at that point?
0: Yeah, that's, that actually is a re- that leads perfectly to the next question, which is like, when should an organization implement a bug bounty program?
1: So that is a really tough question to answer, but I will take a stab at it. So I would say that um, I have seen companies, large and small, startups to you know Fortune one hundred companies, do bug bounty programs, and some do it really well, and some do it really poorly. Um, Some try to do it themselves, for that matter. And so I would say that the best time to introduce a bug bounty program, or even a responsible disclosure or vulnerability disclosure program is probably after you've done some very basic uh, DevOps processes. So in fact, this week on, on my podcast, Application Security Weekly, um, we talked about just this, getting your application security program started. And in my mind, if you're not doing what I think to be the basics in application security, like uh, in this case, version control, for example, if you're not doing version control for your code, you probably have a lot like deep, a lot more deep-seated problems that you should be addressing in your organization before you even look at anything related to AppSec, let alone a bug bounty program. Um, but if you're a company that uh, does version control well, you've adopted a lot of the agile methodologies and the DevOps tool sets and processes, you can probably consume a bug bounty program pretty readily. I mean, if a program uh, that you're working with is, is treating you right They're going to figure out or they're going to work toward figuring out where your organization lives from a software development standpoint and then provision you with the right number of researchers and the right scoped program to make you successful. Because at the end of the day, security researchers love to find things. And and if you don't make uh, the instruction set for them absolutely just airtight, uh, they're going to go crazy on your program. And then you're going to have a lot more to deal with than you really should. So I think that if you you could successfully run a bug bounty program, even if you've never done any sort of application security before, but you're, you you want to work with a, a provider that can actually do all of the triage and validation because they have the experience to do that on your behalf, but also understands that you've never done security before. So rather than saying, yeah, let's invite 100 researchers, maybe it's let's invite three because... At that point, you're probably going to have more than you can deal with anyway, and they're going to find a lot of vulnerabilities on the outset. Now, maybe that means you don't run it as a bounty program because you don't have the budget to pay for bounties on endless vulnerabilities, but at the very least, you can learn a lot uh, about your program. Sometimes researchers will hone their skills by testing on your program, even if it's for reputation points on your platform, and you win, they win because they've now learned things that they can leverage back into paid programs. And you get a better security posture out of it at the end of the day, which is good. You didn't waste any time on false positives or false negatives. You didn't waste any time on um, static analysis tools that may be showing you things that are out of date or dynamic analysis tools that are identifying uh, versions of libraries or versions of software that is patched at the at the binary level as opposed to at the you know configuration level, for example. So there are all sorts of reasons why you can run one successfully, but. It, it varies. It's kind of like a, a shades of gray, right? There are companies that if they're just starting to write their software, should probably be doing other uh, more streamlined processes first, like good linting and uh, you know, version control and good testing or test suites for their code before they get anywhere near any kind of
0: security, let alone bug bounty programs. So you're running into organizations that want to do a bug bounty program and they don't even have like basic development. So
1: I haven't seen that yet, but I, that's more for the general audience. So honestly, I think that for every program that I have encountered, um, so, uh, kind of like full disclosure as well. Like, so now my responsibility at bug crowd as a solutions architect is to help companies build their program, uh, after they have purchased, but, Prior to my role as a solutions architect, my job was to work with prospective customers to talk about their program or their program that they might like to have and figure out, first of all, a good fit, but then also figure out what are their development processes like. So we've actually worked with a number of startups who have never done security before of any kind. And my general recommendation to them was, okay, let's run this as a vulnerability disclosure program. Let's run it privately so we can control the size of the crowd that's coming into your program. And let's tightly scope this so that you can be successful and, and actually learn a few things. And they've actually found a, a ton of value with it uh, for those kind of tightly scoped smaller programs because suddenly they get really high quality people just you know on a weekend taking a glance at it and then popping out a bunch of vul- a bunch of vulnerabilities, which they feel good about as a researcher. So suddenly they get ranked up, they get... Uh, possibly on the leaderboard for the month or the year, uh, and, and to that end, it it can be fruitful for them as a researcher, even if they're not making straight money from the program. Um, but also, I would say that I have seen some companies that have really mature development processes that for some reason or another back away from the idea. And, and I think it's probably because, quite frankly, the whole concept of bug bounties is well, at least from from the broader adoption standpoint, is so new. It's been around since I think like Netscape in the nineteen nineties, uh, and then of course Google, Facebook, etc. But uh, as a an offering that companies can go and purchase, it's you know short of six years old at this point.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I've always believed that you have to have you have to be solid and be able to actually handle uh, the influx of things, which which actually means like it's already got you know. I've seen like a lot of companies say don't use a scanner, which to me says that they've already run zap or burp on their website. Right. Right. And and honestly,
1: um, you do want to have a team that has done a little bit first, hopefully, because then especially if you're running it as a bug bounty program, right? If you're paying bounties, you probably should have done your due diligence before you ran it as a bounty program. Um, but with that being said, um, some companies will buy like a site license, right? So they will have anything under the sun that they own as potentially part of their scope and they run it as a vulnerability disclosure program. So now it's it's not only a matter of testing for vulnerabilities in code that maybe they do have good control over, but it's also asset management. Like, okay, where are these things out on the internet? What are they? And do we even know that they exist? Um, I myself have found a number of things like, marketing websites or event-based websites that had vulnerabilities in them, like exposing the WordPress admin panel, uh, that are things that a lot of companies were like, we didn't even know we had that. Uh, so yeah, sometimes you'll see companies that don't have a, a super mature application security program, but they still end up buying because it's it's an asset management opportunity for them. And they actually find a lot of value there as well. Right. Okay. Okay. So, what are the resources that are available for learning more about bug bounty programs? Well, the the biggest one I would be remiss if I didn't recommend it is uh, Jason Haddock's, uh "The Bug Hunter's Methodology" version version one point. Excuse me, I should say version two point one or two point two. Now, it's it's out on YouTube again. Jason Haddock's, Haddix, H uh, A D D I X, and and that is probably the best lessons learned from a starting points perspective that exists. I mean. Uh, it, for me, I feel like from my experience of working with Jason, I have learned more from him in the last nine or 10 months that I have worked with him than I have over the last four years of application security learning. So that's kind of the big one is, is going to check out his stuff because it's fresh, it's new, it's, it's always up to date. And he gives it at uh, at least a few different conferences, or at least he has given it at a few different conferences at this point. So you can find recordings of those conferences on YouTube. Uh, the other one as well, is, is, much as it is kind of out of date, is the Web Application Hackers Handbook is still really solid. Uh, I myself have kind of picked at it from time to time, but I really dedicated the last, I don't know, six months or so to sit down and read it page for page, chapter for chapter. And the, the mechanisms that it teaches you might have changed a little bit but it's still really valuable from a a methodology standpoint Mm -hmm. um, and a a thinking about it. So those are kind of the the big two that I come back to is is going to check out Jason Haddock's work because I think he does an excellent excellent job teaching you how to expand scope and how to look for vulnerabilities in a more automated fashion uh, in an intelligent way so that you can start to inform the things that you learn from the Web Application Hacker's Handbook.
0: Dude, that handbook is like 800 pages. What are you doing? (laughs) <laughs> I always use it just honestly, as a reference.
1: Honestly, um, for me, it's one of those things where, y- you believe it or not, there are little like nuggets of gold in there that you would totally miss if you didn't read it page for page, chapter for chapter. It's you know, it is a huge book, and sitting on my bookshelf, it is like it, it, I mean, it's the Bible. If you were to like mm-hmm. drop it from my third-story window, you'd probably hurt someone pretty badly. With it. <laughs> Uh, but I would say that there are things that you learn about web technologies today that they still exist, and most people just don't know how they work. Um, so a really good example of this is Albino Wax or um, James Kettle. Uh, so he found some really interesting stuff related to I think it was HSTS, but it was headers inside of uh, like requests that he could like forge, and he built a, a Burp Suite uh, Pro plug-in to automate this process. And I think for him, so he works at Portswigger, which is the makers of Burp Suite Pro. Uh, but for him, he ended up making like $30,000 in bounties, uh, a majority of which he gave to charity, just from messing with, with headers inside of requests that companies weren't even like you know dealing with appropriately. And so to that end, those are the sort of things that they still cover in the Web Application Hacker's Handbook that you know, it's like everything old is new again. So I don't know. It's worth it in my, in my mind
0: personally. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Yep. All right. Is there anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't already discussed?
1: Um, you know, not, not entirely. I would say that for a lot of companies or a lot of organizations, um, Running a managed program is probably the smartest way to run a program if you're going to. And the reason that I say that is not just because of, you know, self-preservation and self-interest of what Bug Crowd offers. But as I'm sure you're aware, Tim, a lot of companies just don't have enough application security talent to really do this on their own. Those, those people in their organization are already way too busy as it is uh, working with development teams to make sure that the code is secure at the outset. So provisioning those people to now do all of your deduplication and triage and validation, you're throwing your money away if you're not buying a program that can actually manage a lot of that workload on your behalf. So that's kind of the big thing that I would say from a bug bounties perspective from a buyer. Now, if you're a researcher, on the other hand, my my number one recommendation is just jump in and do it. Honestly, it's one of those things that it's it's fun to go and do the research. It's fun to watch videos or read blogs or what have you, but it's not a skill. It's all theory until you put your hands on the keyboard, you pull open OWASP Zap or Burp Suite Pro and you do it. And you'd be amazed at what you can find, even on the the programs that are public and and you feel like they've been picked over, they might have been picked over six months ago or a year ago, but the programs or the code that they are are serving up on those applications. I guarantee you has changed, and you're probably going to find some interesting stuff. So just do it is is kind of my biggest thing that I'd recommend.
0: Cool. All right. Um, what would you like to plug?
1: Oh um, well, I guess uh, I kind of mentioned it in the podcast here. So Application Security Weekly is a podcast that I run as a the main host with Paul Essidorian of uh, Paul Security Weekly. So. I host that with him uh, now every Monday. And I think we release like Wednesday mornings. Uh, so check that out. Uh, that's been a lot of fun. We started that earlier this year, and it's it's been a really good time. We talk a lot about DevOps and some of the application security, um, you know, different topics and ideas get covered. So uh, I think that your, your listeners, if they're enjoying this particular show, might enjoy that as well. Um, the other one is, is kind of my personal site, uh, which is something that I've given talks on and hopefully going to be giving training on later this year, which is attackdriven.io. It's uh, basically a simple concept of build a bad application, teach yourself all of the attack techniques to actually exploit those vulnerabilities that you've now put into the application. You know they exist and you know where they exist so you can learn a little bit and then iterate, make the application a little bit harder, learn new techniques, and then from there just kind of skill up uh, on your own. So that site has links to my GitHub, it has links to my Twitter and the podcast, so it's just attackdriven.io, and uh, that'll give you kind of everything about me. Cool. And then you just mentioned Twitter. Oh yeah, yeah. So I'm at and my hacks h a c k s. Yes, it is a bad Lord of the Rings joke. Uh, no, my nickname is not Gimli, and I am not a dwarf. Uh, but uh, it is it is kind of the title that I solidified on. And in fact, I think that my like. My pinned tweet is the, the, you know, these, these opinions are my own sort of thing, but the way that I wrote it, it was very much like a Lord of the Rings quote, which is, uh, these tweets are mine alone and do not represent the council of Elrond or any other organization that I am affiliated with. Nice.
0: Nice. Yeah. I'm looking at it right now. That's exactly right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, uh, I'm a, I'm a bit of a nerd as, uh, as people that know me could probably share. So yeah.
0: absolutely. Aren't we all? Yes, indeed. All right. Well, cool. Well, thank you for joining me to discuss what are bug bounty programs.
1: Thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate it. And as I've said earlier, I've always enjoyed your show for a number of years now. So I'm so glad to be a part of it at this point.
0: That's it. I hope you learned something. Feedback is welcome. Timothy.dblock at gmail.com or on Twitter at Timothy D Block. Show notes can be found at Timothy forward slash EIS. Have a good one.